Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. Today here with me is Peter Puckwine. Peter is Vice President of Innovation at Knapp, one of the world market leaders in warehouse logistics and automation. Knapp is well known as a leading innovator in automation and robotics, including products that are used for warehouse picking, conveying, optimized storage, and sorting. One of the things that makes Knapp stand out for me in particular is a long history of investing in innovation. Long before AI robotics was a major market force, Knapp pioneered the use of compute and automation to optimize warehouse operations. So good to have you here with me. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Peter, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's so good to have you here. I mean, it's different than how we usually meet. I mean, usually, of course, Knapp and Covariant have a, have a big partnership, and usually we meet in the context of that or in the context of us playing tennis matches, <laughs> um, which is always a lot of fun. Definitely remember <laughs> very distinctly, as well as uh, my colleagues at Covariant, the, the match I won where uh, we earned ourselves a, a big packet of uh, Austrian chocolate you sent us. That's a, that's a great memory. It was really fun, yeah. Yeah, can't wait to play again. Of course, we've been on a little hiatus here with, with COVID, but hope, hopefully soon. Maybe this year, yes. I'm pretty hopeful. Now, when I was kind of reading up a bit more on, on Knapp yesterday and you know, learning yet more about the amazing company it is, I was reading and the founder of Knapp, Gunter Knapp, from the very beginning, seemed to be very interested in innovation and reinvesting in R&D to produce new innovation and products. And one thing I saw is this quote, innovation means doing something new and having the courage to actually do it. This is an important aspect of our corporate culture. We try lots of different things to push the development of our technologies forward. Innovative ideas don't really come from solo flyers, but from all areas of the company. In intensive workshops, we bounce ideas around and drop them into the feedback loops involving all our organizational units. And that really intrigued me because you're heading up innovation. And I'm kind of curious when you look at a big picture, you know, what is the organizational structure that you are putting in place to maximize your ability to innovate? So, so back to, to Günther Knapp, who was the founder of the company in 1952, so a long, long time ago. And I would say it was, it was a startup this time in 1952. And as you said, it was an inventive genius. Just to tell the story, because it's, it's funny. Um, the first machine he invented was a donut filling machine. In Austria, donuts don't, don't look like in the US. It's, it's a donut without a hole. And the machine put um, jam into the donut. And that was the first, first machine was, which was invented by, by Günther Knapp. And this DNA from Günther Knapp is still in the company. And yes, my department is named innovation, but that doesn't mean that all the innovation comes from this department. And that, that's very important. And that's how we are, we are structured and organized. So new ideas come from everybody. They come from the sales department. Um, they come from planning departments. The ideas come from customers. And we take the ideas and discuss with him. So it's a very broad range of inputs we collect and, and try to put together and then we try to design the best ideas and really find the solution for a customer out of the best ideas. So that's the way we, we are working. In the innovation department, sure, we have a typical organization uh, like mechatronics development and software development. So we are came really big in software development over the years. So most of our uh, developers are already software developers. What we are trying is, and I think a lot of companies are doing this in a, in a similar way, is we have teams, we call them future teams, and that are 
teams which are allowed to really think about new ideas and to get a budget for it, and they can try it out. We do this with nearly every new idea and um, we put it into our internet and everybody is allowed to apply for this, not just for developers, it's for everybody. It's all for our logistic experts and, and sales guys and so on. So everybody's allowed to apply for this. And then we really try to find out, is this a thing we could really put into a real-life product? And that's, that's the way how we are working. And as soon as we decide with our management board together that we will go this way, then we jump into a normal development process and really try to build industrial products out of it. So that's the typical way we, we, we are thinking and we are working. That's so interesting. So you're saying that if somebody maybe is visiting a customer and they, they see something the customer could benefit from, they have a new idea, they can just put it on the comp company internet and maybe start a whole new effort pushing that direction. Yeah. So, so the idea is taken from the customer and then we are discussing it internally. And we, if we see it's, it's interesting thing, then, then we really search for people um, for this future team and, and really try to start a prototype development and no matter if it's a software thing, it's a robotics thing, it's a system solution thing, whatever. So we're not just focusing on, on, on the product, on, on the technology. The goal is really to build solutions for our customers. And that includes everything. It's not just the technology. It's all the processes behind, which are mostly mapped in software and so on. And yeah, and I think that's a, that's a very funny way of, of developing things. And typically what what people don't often see when, when they think about uh, logistics is that we have nearly all technologies here. So that, that makes it so interesting. So it's robotics, it's image recognition, it's high availability database servers, it's a lot of software stuff. So it's, it's really fun to work with this kind of technology. And there are not a lot of businesses where you really are able to, to deal with all these different technologies and really combine it together to, to new solutions. That's so interesting that you bring up how many people work in software and the wide range of innovative work that's happening at, at Knapp. Yet in 1952, it was a startup at the time and it had a first product, which was putting filling into Austrian donuts. We call them Krapfen. That's the German word for it. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that happen? How does Knapp go from being a Krapfen making company to logistics today. Are you still making crap from today? No, no, we don't. We just eat them. We don't produce them by, by our own. But uh, yeah, this, this story after the founding years in the, in the 1960s um, continued with um, the first conveyors. So, so Günther Knapp uh, really built conveyors for specific industries. And um, then going um, to 1970s um, and 1980s, there were the real international customers which were focusing on, on the healthcare business. So um, the products at this time were automated um, picking systems um, for the pharmaceutical wholesale. These solutions are just like a fully automated machine ejecting boxes of drugs and, and filling them into boxes and delivering them to, to the pharmacies. And this is the, the, the major, major product that was invented here. And with this invention of the, of the A-frame auto picker, really knapp went international and a lot of customers in the pharmaceutical wholesale um, have installed warehouses with this kind of system. The interesting thing with the pharmaceutical wholesale is that we learned a lot there. So pharmaceutical wholesale 
is a market where you have very short lead times on deliveries. For example, in, in Europe, if you order something in the pharmacy, the pharmacist calls the wholesaler and this is delivered within two or three hours. So that's a very short period of time also compared to that what we have today. And for this, it was necessary really um, to build machines which were very robust. So it was not possible that these machines failed for one or two hours. This is, was unacceptable. And we had to, to uh, reach a very high quality in the picking. So errors shouldn't have happened there. That's, that was a really tricky thing. And also the software behind, which was connecting to, to the systems everywhere. It was the request from the customer to be very efficient, to be very stable, and to be a long-term partner there. And I would say with the pharmaceutical hose, we really learned a lot. And that is still in our DNA and was the basis for, for the success of Knapp. Now that's so interesting that you start in pharma and they have these two hour, three hour delivery times, which is kind of exactly what every other business is striving for today. But you were doing this how long ago? Yeah, it was in the 1980s. So these auto pickers went stark in the 1980s and that they're, it's still a major product of Knapp still. So um, this is standard in the pharmaceutical wholesale to have these kind of machines and uh, the business is a little bit different from US compared to with Europe because we have directly um, give the, the drugs in small packages to the customer in Europe. In the US, it's a single pill picking and it's a little bit of difference, but from, from the quality and from the requirements, it's, it's nearly the same. So yeah, and we are proud of this because it's still a big part of, of our business. And yeah, we have very long-term partners and customers here, which buy solutions at Knapp for 30 years or longer. And that was the, the stable basis for, for the success. Now, Peter, I'm curious, when you talk about pharmacy, I think people definitely, everybody, definitely me has thought about, I want, I, want, I need something, I, w- I want it now because the doctor prescribed it, I want it right away. But other than that, at least myself, until we started Covariant, wasn't thinking too much about logistics. Logistics was this thing behind the scenes that, um, you know, well, it's logistics and it's kind of a bit of a, a thing that you don't know many details about. But then, of course, COVID-19 hit and, well, all of a sudden there's no toilet paper in the store and everybody starts thinking about logistics, right? And where does everything come from and how does it get there and will it still get there tomorrow, next week? Will it run out? And so I'm really curious as a company that has been in logistics since you know decades ago, and then doing this kind of couple hour delivery order to delivery time in pharmacy since the eighties, like how was it from your perspective and a knapp perspective to see logistics so in the spotlight? And did you have any warehouses that were delivering toilet paper to stores? And was there anything special happening there? The COVID time was sure very, very stress, stressful also for us because we have a lot of customers which are in the food supply chain, as we already talked about in the, in the pharmaceutical supply chain and so on. And we did everything to support them the best we could for the COVID because they had so many orders and it wasn't possible that the system could fail here. So our customer service did a great job to support all the customers all over the world in the critical supply chains to really take care that not only the toilet paper, but also more important things are delivered to the customers and, and also to the shops. So that, that was the main thing we had at COVID. So, so very, very intensive and, and great customer support. 
which was requested for nearly every every customer. Now, this might have been, I don't know, maybe the first time that many of your friends were curious about logistics. And, and I'm kind of curious, you know, when did you get excited about logistics? It's, did you, you know, as a kid already dream about being in the logistics space or how did that all start? So how did it all start? That's a, that's a good question, Peter. So just a few words about, about my history and how all, everything started. So um, I would say everything started in the year 1987 around this because my brother and I got as a present from our father um, a Commodore C64, which was home computer at, at this time. And uh, my brother and I were very interested in, in, in programming and, and doing all this stuff. And at this time, so you hadn't any internet or something like this to learn programming. And, and the funny thing was at this time, there were a lot of computer magazines and they had source code printed out in the magazine over pages and pages and pages. So if you want wanted to program something, you at uh, class by class, word by word, line by line, you had to tip it into the computer because there was no possible to get it. And that's why, where our first programs we did. And the very first program I did together with my brother was funny because we went to the airport and there were a lot of uh, things about airplanes, when airplanes start and, and when airplanes land and so on. And we collected this data and wrote a program just, just to see um, when airplanes start and land and so on. So this was the really first software we wrote together. Yeah, and then later, um, after high school, um, I already did a lot of programming um, because I really loved programming and was very focused in on, on all programming languages which were on the market at this time. And then I decided for me to study mechanical engineering economics because I said, okay, I love programming, but I just want to learn more from the mechanical and electronical side. And that's why I decided to, to go this way. Yeah, and then... I met uh, my professor where I did my, my final exam and my master thesis. He had a very nice topic for the master thesis. And that's very connected to this, what we are doing. It's now 20 years ago, but we had at the University of Technology in Graz, we had um, mobile robots that were playing uh, soccer against each other. And um, so we had three robots in a team playing against three other robots. And the problem at this time, it was 2001, 2002, the problem we didn't have really good cameras, no high resolution cameras, whatever. So we decided to use ultrasonic sensors. So we had on each robot, we had 24 ultrasonic sensors looking into 360 degrees. And there was a huge problem because all the robots fired ultrasound in all directions and we get a lot of, got a lot of crosstalk. So every sensor was interfering the other one and there was nothing. So we didn't see anything. And for my master thesis, I wrote an algorithm to filter out all this noise and to really be able to navigate and to see things with ultrasonic sensors. It's a completely different technology to today, but it's the same problem we had then. I went to a startup, which uh, my professor um, uh, founded at this time. It was an startup which uh, worked in the, in the aviation industry. So they, they made electronic flight instrument displays. And this was very interesting um, for me because I learned a lot there. So it's real-time operating systems, a lot of testing, code coverage, whatever. So it was really interesting to me. And then um, some years later, I, I changed to Knapp because I also wanted to see different things. And I also started as software developer at Knapp and did a huge part of the, of the last generation of the autopic of the A-frame for the pharmaceutical wholesale. So this was main part of my development. Yeah, and since... Since around 2011, I'm, I'm responsible for the, the innovation and R&D department here. So 
So that's basically my story. And yeah, still in my free time, I love programming all the things. So I would say I'm a little bit a freak on the programming side because everything what is new also on the AI side, I need to try it out by myself. And that's around my story here. Very innovation driven from the very beginning, like new, new technologies, exploring them, playing around with them. You end up at, at Knapp. Now, Knapp is one of the world leading companies in automation for logistics. At the same time, I think even from the entire top 10, I don't think any of them would be household names to most people, whether it's Knapp or any of the others. They all operate behind the scenes as far as most people are concerned, right? And so I'm kind of curious if maybe you can say a bit more about, you know, what is Knapp and what, what is it doing today? To summarize what we are doing, so um, our goal is really to provide intelligent um, automation solutions to, to our customers, being partner of our customers, really including all the processes, including all the software, so really providing a full solution for them. And it's not just the logistics; it's the entire, entire value creation chain. So it's really from, from the production to the logistics, also to smart hubs and, and really down to, to the last mile. So that's, that's what we are providing. As I said, we are partner of our customers. Um, we're learning from our partners and just try to provide really the best individual solution for them. So we have a bunch of standardized products, like also the, the Easy robot and so on, but we, we really try to find the best logistical setup for our customers in the combination of the right products and the right software behind. That's maybe 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 the best description of this. And how does it work in, in general? So there's a long consulting phase with our customers if we start a project like this. A lot of discussions, a lot of designs, the sales and design engineering teaming is, is simulating warehouses, is providing the best solution for them. And then if the customer really decides to go with us, then really the production installation starts uh, the ramp up phase of such uh, projects. And then sure, um, very important thing, customer service that really supports the customer over the whole lifetime of his solution. So Peter, when we think about warehouses, when I think about warehouses, maybe five years ago before I started working in warehouses, I would just think about a massive room, massive, massive room with lots of shelves. And, you know, if somebody needs something from the warehouse, then, you know, you may be looking at database and what shelf you're supposed to run to. And then you run, run to that shelf, you go get it and repeat. And definitely there are still warehouses like that today. How has that evolved? And where do you see this today in terms of what, what a warehouse could look like? Yeah. So basically the goal for if, if we design a warehouse, so what is very important to us is really um, to have a high storage density. So the space is expensive and also taking care of the natural resource, it, it makes sense to build warehouses as, as large as needed and not, not too large. And that's basically one, one design criteria then Sure, it's throughput. It's um, what the customer requests from the warehouse, how many goods should go in from, from the goods inside and how many goods and how many orders should leave the warehouse uh, on one day. That's also criteria. In the last years, and that's, that's maybe what, what really changed is um, efficiency. So power consumption, taking care of all the resources. For example, if you deliver two pieces in one box or two pieces in two box and boxes. And so such kind of things are always in discussion. And we're trying to 
really design the warehouses much more efficient as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. So that's the request from the market. And I think that's also good, taking care of the environment and to, to look at this. Yeah, on the efficiency side, it's it's again, because I think a lot of people don't notice if they, they think of logistics. So everything in the logistics is electrical driven. Everything, if we if we if we break, uh, we regenerate energy back to the uh, to the system and so on. That's that's standard since 10, 15 years. So uh, because everybody says, okay, electrical cars, that's nice. That in the logistics, we do this since at least 15 years in that in that kind of way. So having green energy and powering such kind of warehouses is an important thing, and we are proud of this that we really can deliver such kind of warehouses that really take care of the environment. That probably changed over over the last years, and then. We are facing things that customers say, mostly in Europe, but also in the US, that they don't find people who are willing to work in such kind of warehouses. So this is something our customers tell us. And for this, we also need to find solutions and to get the degree of automation higher than it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. That's the thing that drives us to really find better solutions, more efficient solutions, and also uh, invest more in, in, in robotics and yeah, and also AI behind. Now, Knapp is particularly known to be leader in high automation, high automation warehouses. What does such a high automation Knapp warehouse look like? So the typical Knapp warehouse has storage system, uh, automated storage system. We call this always a shuttle. So this is one of our major products. Can you imagine it's a rack, but on every level of this rack, you have shuttles going around in, in 2D direction and accessing um, products uh, everywhere on this level. And these shuttles are connect, connected over high-speed lifts and deliver these, um, these boxes down to the next step in the warehouse. So this kind of shuttle system, depending on the, the layout, um, biggest one we did is around 1.2 million storage locations. So this is a system like 100 meter wide, 120 meter long and up to 30 meters high. So that's, that's a, big, a big one. And then afterwards, after this uh, shuttle system, we go really in, in a picking process. For example, we have uh, picking stations where the boxes from the system are delivered to these picking stations and, and a picker human or a robot um, then picks the final customer order, which is then packaged and goes to the truck ramp and gets delivered to the customer. Yeah, that's the simple view of this. Sure, there are a lot of uh, parallel processes behind, like, for example, the goods in process. What do you order? When do you order? Where do you store the products to be fast and efficient? So there's a lot of data behind, which is really necessary to provide an efficient solution here. Yeah, all these, all these algorithms, these are mostly classical algorithms um, where you say the specific criteria, um, where, where to store a product, how often is it sold, depending on how often it is sold. The storage location could differ to products which are sold at a, at a lower amount and so on. And, and this is all software, I would say software magic behind that takes care of this to make the system efficient. So it's, it's not that you can store every product everywhere in the system that doesn't make any sense. Thinking about the visual here, you, you describe effectively on the biggest scale, I mean, there's all kinds of scales, two football fields worth of storage, 30 meters high, a massively dense grid with storage totes in there, and then robots on rails that zip around and, and retrieve things from this grid and, and then bring them to the picking and packing areas. The thing a lot of us have seen for many years and, and often is in the news, of course, is 
Amazon's setup because I mean Amazon is kind of you know the most visible place for a lot of us where we go buy things online and then we can see these videos of these Amazon robots that are not on rails and they bring shelves to the picking and packing area and so I'm curious you know what do you see as the trade-offs between robots that retrieve entire shelves and bring them to pick and pack area versus the robots on rails that retrieve boxes with with goods and bring those to the pick and pack areas basically our goal is um, as I said earlier it's to be to be really efficient and and our strategy behind is just move things you really need to move that's the idea behind so if I need to fulfill an order I try to get a total is just the, the products that I need and not for example moving racks around so that's that's a different approach just so it's in different fields it makes more sense maybe travel with with the small racks around but I would say in the really high speed and can be that it's not so efficient and that maybe you don't get the throughput out but I don't want to compare us with Amazon because uh, Amazon is a completely different company than we are. It's also a little bit bigger than we are. We, we are partner of our customers. So we support our customers to be, for example, good e-commerce um, companies, whatever, or, or shop delivery companies, whatever. So don't want to compare, compare with Amazon because there are so many technologies out there. And for every technology, there's a market. It mostly depends on what kind of products you have, what kind of orders you have. What is that the number? We call them SKUs. What is the, the maximum number of different products you have to store? So there's so many different things you have to consider. So there's no way to say this is the better solution or that is the better solution without knowing the details. So it's different approaches. Yes, sure. And um, for both approaches, I think there's, there's a place. I, I fully agree. And I am curious though, because with a company like Amazon, we know when we click online that we get an Amazon warehouse kicks into action and an order gets fulfilled in the background. I don't think too many people necessarily know when they click on an order online on a different side that actually in the back, a Knapp warehouse kicks into action for them. And I'm kind of curious if you're able to share some, some examples of things that, you know, if we go buy things online, where actually the back end might be a Knapp warehouse Taking, helping, you know, fulfill the order. Sure, I can, can share um, uh, some customers of us. So especially for Europe, Salando is is well-known, is, is a Knapp customer. Um, Hugo Boss, who doing high-quality fashion, ASOS, Volkswagen in the, in the industry. McKess in the US, which is one of the biggest players in the world in, in pharmaceutical wholesale. Avon Cosmetics, for example, Christian Dior, and also Boots in the UK, very well-known. So this is... Short, short wrap-up of, of some of our customers. So that's so interesting, but the branding is very different. Like, I guess when you go online to Yugo Boss, it wouldn't say Knapp is, you know, in the fulfillment process, the way, the way you might see it's delivered by, you know, FedEx or something. It just all happens behind the scenes, integrated with the customer. Exactly. So that's also our integration layer. So with our, with our solutions, we directly talk on, for example, the ERP systems of, of our customers and really do the value chain below. So we really do everything. Also, if it goes to the truck ramp, we try to take care that everything can be well packaged into the truck and so on. So there's a lot of things, also processes that go out of the warehouses where we take care of that they are really working very well. So there's a lot of optimization of overall these, these value chains um, just by software. And that's what 
most of the people don't see. I'd like to double click on that because I'm really curious about that because definitely, you know, the initial impression when you think about warehouses is physical goods go from a storage location into a box that gets shipped off or into a truck that delivers to a, a retail store. But what you're saying, Peter, is that actually, even though there is the physical, a lot of the important stuff happens in software. Why is that? And, and exactly what, why is that so important? I think that's that's maybe um, to go back in time a little bit, there's a, there's a huge thing that happened after all the automation stuff in production industry arrived. So starting with the industrial re revolution with the steam machines and so on, a lot of things were automated. It's like welding, painting, some assembly and so on. And these are all stages. So um, every stage in this assembly process, for example, does the same. So it's just a repeated movement, repeated um, things that happen there. And I think that the big difference to, to the warehousing is that there are so many factors that you don't know. So a lot of factors that influence the system at any time and you have to react on it. So not everything is predictable. For example, if you if you had bad weather outside, um, a lot of people buy clothes for rain, for example, or umbrellas, whatever. So this is something you don't know maybe two days before. So uh, you must be able to react on such kind of things. Also priorities. So if, for example, a customer makes a sale for white T-shirts, T-shirts online, for example, you need 100,000 white T-shirts and the last day you just need uh, hundreds of them, for example. So all the information changes, the, the request for the stock changes and so on. And it's very, very high dynamic. If I go, for example, to our customers in the food supply chain, it's, for example, you have to take care that you get the products at the FIFO principle, that you get the products out the first day expire the first. So you have to take care that the products um, are delivered with the, with the right quality and so on. And yeah, and there's so many influences. And also, if you have manual work in the warehouses, human beings tend to not to exactly do the same movement in the same time so that's not possible so you have to react if they need a pause or need a break and and go out and something like this so you have to interfere with the system that this doesn't influence the whole system and everything stops because there's some parameter that that is different than the day before and maybe that's that's really the tricky the tricky optimization thing in the warehouses you just said the word optimization that that's what came to my mind it seems like your software is running a massive optimization behind the scenes. Is that a good way to think of it? And how often does that run? So optimization, some parts of this run in real time, yeah, and all, all the stocks things and, and the optimizing, for example, runs at night. So if we get a prediction, for example, from our customer that, yeah, on the next day, we have a sale for, for the white t-shirts again, then we can prepare the system for such kind of events if we know it. So the data behind this is very important. And if we know it, we can prepare the system. We can put, for example, white T-shirts on fast locations that are accessible very fast with not much movements uh, to go to these locations and get the products out of the system. So th this is the way how, how we can optimize. And it's maybe also where, where AI can jump in on, on this level. So It seems like AI could have a very big role there because, I mean, to me, that sounds like effectively a reinforcement learning problem where you're constantly making decisions and, and the state of the warehouse changes. The outside world has um, somewhat, well, definitely a stochastic not, not input as far as the model is concerned. And it just, you need to make new decisions all the time with possibly long-term consequences if you store something in the wrong place. 
now you're stuck with that being harder to retrieve if you didn't realize it was going to be popular. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. So it's a very, very good uh, thing for, for AI here. And if you talk about reinforcement learning, it's exactly what I think. Because with reinforcement learning, it, it's really possible with the right information, with the right rewards to train models that exactly take care of these kind of things, of these kind of parameters where, where you can optimize and you can train it. What is still necessary here is a lot of domain know-how to really understand what are the critical things where I give rewards to the model and, and give him the benefit in the, in the next training run to be really successful. I think that's tricky to, 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 to find it out. And also the testing environments need to be able to replay the reality. That's also something where we, where it's necessary to put a lot of know-how in there that all these uh, emulation and simulation environments are really capable of this and, and replaying things. But I think that's exactly a, a perfect thing for, for AI and not only reinforcement learning. So if we, if we go, for example, to, to supervised learning, that's nearly standard in image recognition. So if you, if you have intelligent cameras or software that needs to detect specific things and so on. So I would probably say that, that supervised learning is, is nearly standard here already in the in the image recognition so also plays a big role in, in in automation at this time yeah and i think the thing you say really ring home with me i work in reinforcement learning a lot as as you know and the whole trial and error learning it requires typically very good simulators because if you don't have good simulator well if you have to run everything in the real world that's that's costly it's slow so you need a good simulator but if you training the wrong simulator, the result is optimized for the wrong situation and you don't get the optimal results on, on your actual real-world deployments that you're doing. And definitely, I think the other thing that's really interesting that you're hitting upon to me is this notion of designing the right reward. If you design the wrong reward, then maybe you know it optimizes it really well, but actually the result is, is terrible. And there's, of course, classical examples of you know paperclip factories taking over taking over the world. And I'm kind of curious of it in your context, when you think about reward design for a warehouse, right? Or an entire supply chain, that is effectively laying out what you're going to deliver to the customer. And I'm kind of curious, what is you know a reward function for a situation like that? Yeah, reward function could be, for example, utilization of a, of a picking station so that if there's somebody working there, you have to take care that he always has a flow of material going to the station that he can really work very fast. It could be, for example, one. The other, the other end is, um, we call it a cutoff time. So a specific time where you need to deliver the products to the truck. And if you're too late, you have a problem because the, the truck has to, has to leave and such kind of things um, sure are very interesting here. But I think also from the stock side, so there's a lot of things from the goods in and so on where, where we can think about what is what really helps, where to store things, and, and also, for example, the amount of products that have been sold in the, in the last period and so on. So there are a lot, lot of things. And I think the trickiest thing with this is because every engineer, and, and, and same, same for me, is everybody wants to understand why, for example, in the warehouse, if, you, if you're in a big, in a big warehouse, um, you want to understand why the box goes now left or right. So everybody wants to understand this. And if it goes left, I want to have some, some algorithm or something, some rules behind where I say, okay, it went left because of this and that. And I think that's the, that's the tricky thing um, with, with reinforcement learning here. Um, 
maybe we don't know why it went left, but it's probably a good idea to go left. And, <laughs> and I think that the, the result um, of going left and then, then being successful is absolutely okay, but a lot of people really try to understand it. And I think that's, that's maybe from the engineer side, really think where people have to rethink this because it's not necessary to exactly know why this box now goes left. If the result is the right one, just accept it. And that's, that's the classical engineers, which never did a lot of things in, in I probably have to have this problem. And that's the training and that's, that's explaining things to the people and also to, to technicians on customer side. So everybody wants to be sure that he knows why this and that happens. That's so interesting because that, that really affects adoption, of course. Like maybe there's, you can have a reinforced learning agent that is really good at optimizing the flow of goods in the warehouse. But if it's unpredictable, people might not trust it. And, and and might just be resistant and say, well, I cannot trust my warehouse with this AI agent. I mean, one way around that is, of course, to to just do it. <laughs> and after after you know a few months, you realize it just really works well, and then you know your confidence is there. But um, maybe that that's that's a little tricky. I do think there is one thing though that maybe ties back to what you talked about earlier and building simulators and so forth, which is I think if if a reinforced learning agent is gonna actually run all that, it's going to have been trained in a simulator. And it seems that you would want some kind of monitoring system that uh, keeps track as to whether the situation you have in the warehouse still matches all the assumptions under which you build the simulator. Because if the assumptions become mismatched between how the simulator was built or, or learned from past data with how the warehouse behaves now or what's in the warehouse now or the requirements on it, then it seems might get unpredictable behavior that, that's actually not optimal for the new situation. Yeah, absolutely right. So it's necessary to compare it in a way, but it could also be possible to say, okay, um, if I have this training environment and the simulators, um, I can match the classical um, straightforward algorithms against reinforcement learning and compare them to each other. So because if I know that the classical algorithms work very well in reality, and I see similar and even better results of reinforcement learning in the same environment, I think it's a good assumption to say, okay, this will work in the real world as designed. And it's a different approach because I think it's really hard to, to really sync the simulator with the real world and compare the results. It's just maybe putting both things into the simulator and compare it there. As always, we will also be posting a video recording of this conversation onto our YouTube channel and our website, therobotbrains.ai. We'd love for you to subscribe to our channel to make sure that you get an alert whenever we post a new episode. You can email us at podcast at therobotbrains.ai with any thoughts about the show, suggestions for future guests, or with any questions you may have. You can show your support for the podcast by giving us a review on whichever platforms you listen to our show. And please consider sharing our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Talking about automation, there is automation that could optimize the flow of goods. When I Googled Knapp, yesterday to you know refresh myself again on, on the latest you, you have on the website and, and so forth. Naturally, the top link Google gave me was the Knapp Company website. But interestingly, it did not give the Knapp Company homepage as a top link. And I verified this in, in the um, incognito browser. I had to because 
the top link was actually Knapp Solutions slash Picking. So Picking Solutions, which was very close to my heart, of course. That's why I was at first, I was like, okay, Google personalized this for me to show the picking because they know that's what I'm most excited about. But actually I verified it. And to me, that, that's an indication that maybe either Knapp directly set this up or Google realized that's where the traffic is going, that what people are interested in today is picking solutions. What is a picking solution? Can you say a bit more about that? A picking solution is, um, yeah, as I described earlier, um, our warehouse design. Um, if we have this, this automated storage system, the shuttle system, then we need a place where we can finally fulfill the order. So we get the right boxes out of the storage system and really try um, to put um, the requested products into the customer order. That's what we understand with, with picking. So it's just taking one product out of a storage tote and put it into the, the final tote, which is delivered to the customer. That's the picking process. And yeah, I would say that's the, the holy grail in interlogistics to, to automate this, uh, this process for this huge variety of, of products that are, on, that are available in all the online stores and all, all the shops over the world. So I think that's, that's the most tricky thing. And that's what we are working on together with Covariant. I think that's, that's maybe maybe also the link to to the knapp covariant story a little bit because um, uh, when I start of automated picking, we as knapp started already 2009 2010 in searching for solutions because the requests of our customers were on the table and there was no technical solution. So if we do picking, we need to understand what is in the storage box. So we know which products are in there, but what we don't know is. What is the orientation of the product? How can I, for example, take it? How can I grip it? And so on. So there's a lot of randomized things that it's really hard to make available for machines to understand. And that's really tricky stuff. And we tried out a lot of technologies, for example, uh, LIDAR, so um, 2D lasers, which scan the toads and so on and try to detect products. That works well for simple things, but as soon as you have something with a plastic bag or shrink wrapped, whatever, you have so many reflections that you don't find this type of products in the, in the box. So then in 2013, uh, 14, the first really industrial grade 3D camera, cameras came out and sure, we, we tried, tried it out and had similar problems because with all the reflections on most of the products, it's really hard to get a, a grasp on the product because you have some uh, I would say ghost images hovering around somewhere because these are made out of the reflection. So it was really, really hard to to find a technical solution for this. And we also were, were, were talking to a lot of companies and startups and so on. And, and yeah, we also find out that it's, you see a lot of nice videos also on the market where everything is is fine, but nobody... Nobody at this time really had a solution which is working in, in real life. So everybody just uh, showed videos where you have simple products or the videos were cut to, to, to filter out the things that didn't work and so on. So it's that was really hard to achieve. And I think with our inventive DNA, we didn't stop working on this because we wanted to have a solution for this. Maybe that's, that's, um, that's a little bit the, the knapp coherent story. And then... Um, of our robotics team, so we already had a team um, 100% focusing on this, um, was on the GTC conference in the Bay Area um, in 2018, and they visited your keynote there. 
Christoph and his team, they were extremely impressed about reinforcement learning and everything you presented there. And, and so um, when they came back, they talked to me and said, this was so, so impressive. And um, some weeks later, I visited you in, in, in Berkeley and we had our first discussion about maybe how we could solve this holy grail of interlocutistics together. I remember that really well. I remember Christoph coming up to me at, at NVIDIA's GTC and you know, being very excited about if we could maybe do something together. And I remember at the time, um, actually, I was still very naive and, <laughs> and didn't know what I know today. I was like, this sounds pretty cool, but I've seen videos of, of order picking. <laughs> well, it's really, it's not really order picking, but you know, demo attempts with, you know, carefully orchestrated videos built around it of order picking, but I didn't know that. And so I was like, man, you know, it's interesting, but I feel like I've seen that happening. And then you came to Berkeley and I think you used the exact same phrasing that you use today. You said, you know, the holy grail in logistics right now is, is going to be how to automate the picking. It's, it's the thing that that is just the bottleneck right now. And I remember telling you at the time, well, Peter, I, I've seen videos and it's in that conversation actually that you convinced me that this was not a solved problem at all. Um, until then, I thought, well, I've seen the videos. It's probably taken care of. Equivalent, we should work on, on other things because there's so many other things to do. But you said, no, no, this is the first problem. This is the most important problem. It's the first one that needs to be solved. And you said, we visited many places and, you know, the reality doesn't match the videos essentially. And we need something that works reliably. And that, that for me was, was really intriguing at the time. Um, cause like, wow, that's so interesting. You've, you've traveled the whole world, you know, how every warehouse works pretty much. And you're, you're telling me that this, this is the thing we should be doing and, and try to figure out together. And here we are today, of course, doing those things, but that, that conversation was pretty big in, in my own trajectory in terms of realizing how hard a problem it actually is because of all the variation, so many SKUs changing all the time. It's a super hard problem and, and, and really fun all, and exciting all the progress we've, we've made together. Absolutely. So I would say we really enjoyed the time since we met the first time in Berkeley. And um, yeah, I think this stage uh, to get a very, very great successful story because we have the first fully automated picking systems out on the market. They are running in live operations. So that's for me, really, really impressive. And yeah, I think it's a very, very successful story. Yeah, I'm super excited. I mean, to me, it all came full circle about a year and a half ago when we let a reporter, New York Times at the time, just visit a facility where we deployed Kaveran, uh, Knapp, Pick It Easy robot system. And we just let them watch it the whole time, let them record their own video whole day, whatever they want to do, talk to anybody there who's seen the robot and get the real story of how well it works. And I feel like that really got us, you know, confirmation that we are where, where we want to be. It's always uh, fun for me also if, if people of my family ask me, what is AI and how, how can I, how does it work in the robots? And, and people just always think um, we are predicting the, uh, you're predicting the future with AI. I think, no, it's not predicting the future. Let's compare it. For example, Peter, with our favorite sports with, with tennis, it's, it's AI is not capable of predicting the next Grand Slam champion. I think not, not today, but AI is capable of understanding the game without knowing the rules and making a machine able to play against a human, for example. That, that's AI for me. It's, it's not predicting 
the next 20 years, what will happen is really understanding the world for machines. And, and that's, for me, the power of AI, because telling a machine, I always take this example, for example, if I have the robot and a robot needs to grip a glass. So glass is a very, very <laughs> critical thing to, to, to grip as a human. And that, that's, the, that's the main point. As a human, um, we just do it. We just take the glass, but nobody thinks about how does it work. If we think of a, a glass of water standing in front of us, we don't go with both fingers, with the trigger finger and with the thumb, five millimeters from the left and the right to the glass, and the glass is exactly in the middle, and then I close the fingers. That's not the reality, but everybody tries with the robot to do it that way. The human goes with one finger to the glass, touches it a little bit, and understands where the glass is positioned, and then closes the thumb and takes it. And for all this stuff, I think that the point is it's necessary to understand the world. And that's what AI does here. It understands the world and gives the feedback to the machine, which can then interact with the product and can take it. I think the most exciting thing really, or, or most difficult thing at the same time is it has to understand things it has not seen exactly before. It's trained on some data. It's not exactly what it'll see in the future, but somehow you know, it's sufficiently related that it can still make good predictions and good decisions in these future situations. Now, AI is, of course, the, the modern software in, in many ways, right? At the same time, I think it's very interesting that you really largely come from a software background, excitement about software, yet you end up a logistics company, which at first glance, most people would think of as a building physical things. But software has always play, played a massive role at Knapp. And so I'm kind of curious, how do you see the role of software today and, and, and from there AI? And, and how do you see it even grow beyond what it is today? The big difference to if we go in the past 15 or 20 years, the, the big difference is what we're facing uh, today and what we are planning now is that we really need um, to look at the full value chain. That's, that's maybe the most important thing, because if you're just looking at, at the automated warehouse and optimizing everything that is possible. So with AI and everything so on, that doesn't mean that the whole process of, of the value chain has the best optimization. And so the difference is really to interact with all things in the value chain and really to share the data in a way that you can understand the data and really try to optimize the whole chain. A good example is if we order something online, and you are not at home and the parcel service arrives at home and you are not at home and takes the parcel again and tries it again the next day. Every kind of optimization we did in the warehouse doesn't matter at this point anymore because we were optimizing time slices of seconds, of minutes to be fast enough. And then we lose one day because nobody is at home. And I think that's, that's the big goal. And it's also a point again for sustainability because it doesn't make sense that a, a truck um, tries to fulfill the order to the to the customer two or three times. That's a completely thing where we waste resources. So that's not the way um, we are thinking. So we really try to understand the whole chain and really want to optimize over the whole chain that really we have a benefit out of it. Everybody has a benefit out of it. And that's, I think, the biggest goal also for, for the next years. Peter, I'm really curious about this. You, you touch upon this whole value chain. And of course, my first reaction is, yes, make sure the whole value chain works together well. But then my next reaction is, actually, what even is the value chain in, in your case? Where, where does it start and, and where does it end? What does it look like, for example? Our view of the value chain is that we really start in the, in the production. 
So we have a factory where a product is produced. Um, then we go to, to the warehouse and then we go, for example, to a hub or to a store or really to the last mile to the end customer. That's for me the whole value chain. And really from the production to the end customer, this, in our view, needs to be optimized. So there's a lot to do. And to come out of the warehouse and really um, optimizing everything. Because as I said, it doesn't make sense to, to have the local optimum and gain a lot of uh, another 1.5% to be a little bit faster and then we are losing it on the other stages in the process. And that's, that's probably the, the biggest goal, the goal we have for the sustainability and for the efficiency of, the, of all these processes. It seems like part of it would be traditional software, monitoring everything, making sure you know, n- nothing is going completely wrong and everything's logged correctly. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if AI is starting to play a role too here in this full chain analysis. Absolutely. So AI will play a role because we're collecting a, a, a lot of data here. And I compare it again with, with the story of my master thesis with the ultrasonic sensor, where there's a lot of noise and it's really hard to find anything out of this data. Same thing 20 years later is um, we have a lot of data, but Every data set is stored in a different way. Every data set contains maybe different attributes and so on. So we need to find a way really to, to store the data in a way that we have with AI the possibility to understand it. So it must be some kind of data culture that data is really stored in, in, in specific uh, data sets. And then, sure, then we have a huge possibility with reinforcement learning really to train models and really to define the benefits and really try to, to optimize this full value chain. So I think that's, that's absolutely the future on the, on the software side. That's so interesting because, I mean, you're generating so much data. Now, some of this data could have privacy issues possibly, right? Because if you talk about somebody's not home, probably people don't want it to be advertised <laughs> when they're home and not home. And so it seems like some of these things could have some, some complications there. What do you think about that? Is there similar things on the production side or are those issues only on the end consumer side of things? The production side, there's also the supply chain behind the, the, the production. So to get raw materials and so on. So th- there's also a point where you need to optimize and we uh, have to orchestrate everything. What Let's call it smart factory and uh, really takes care of the timing behind and so on. So I think it's also on, on, on the start of the, of the value chain, from, from our point of view, it's also really necessary to have this data and to, to generate it. But I think for the, because you ask about the personal data of people, yes, that's, that's very important. So there are rules and laws uh, around this, and it's absolutely necessary to store all this data in a neutral way so that there's no direct connection to the end customer. There's no direct uh, connection to to anybody else who is part of this of this value chain. So that's where we, we need to take care of. So I think also the the, the, the laws and, and the requirements um, will be tougher and tougher on this. And that's absolutely necessary to take care that the data is really without any connection and to, to the end customer and without any possibility to read something out. What is, what is he ordering every day and why is he order, ordering this and so on. So... I think this, this will happen and this must happen. Now, as you try to cover everything, it's a lot to cover, of course. And one of the things that then comes to my mind is we partnered together for a specific part of that chain. That's the order fulfillment part in, in the warehouse and possibly you know, 
related things. I'm curious, does Knapp partner with, you know, startups more generally? And is there, is there such a history of working together with startups? So we have a long history working together with partners, if they're customers or if they're suppliers of us. So, so we always have this partnership approach and we also have the point that we say, okay, we cannot do everything by our own. And that's, that's also not the goal. With startups, I would say it depends because we are really focusing on, on long-term relationship and that, that, that's very important to us. And that's what we have seen in Covariant. So because we need to support our customers. We we want to improve the product over time. We want to add new ideas and new features to the product. So we really need something like a long-term view that this can be, really be successful because if a customer invests in a warehouse, this will run for 10, 15, maybe 20 years. So it's the kind of approach we we are having. So um, everything around must, must be okay that we really... Um, really work together with, with with startups. So it's not just there's a new startup, I have a nice idea, let's do a cooperation. So there must be more behind, to be honest. And and that's very important to us. Yeah, and we've definitely enjoyed that mindset you have to to truly partner and really be in it together for, for the long run and, and, and work together in, in the best way for the end customer in the end. One of the things I'm curious about Peter, is if you think about today's warehouse, different ways they're set up, do you feel like today's warehouses are kind of converged and, and this is how warehouses will be in the future? Or do you see certain trends where things are changing and new types of warehouses are being designed and, and are coming together? I think what, what a little bit changes is the process of the size and the number of, of distribution centers. So there's an absolutely trend. If, if we look at the food industry, is absolutely trend to be very close to the end customer and to have, to have really short um, pickup pick times for the customers and very short delivery times. So it's necessary to have these big DCs because otherwise you cannot bring the products in time to these smaller ones, which are located maybe in an urban area, or whatever. So this this will this will stay. So we need this this big DCs and we will have a lot of smaller DCs which really do take care of the last mile. I would not focus on the products or on the on the machines behind because there's a, a lot of things have changed over the last years and they will change a lot of things also in the next 10 years. But I think basically it's just more what is the process. The process will be similar, but maybe the way to fulfill the, the process will be a little bit different. So um, this, this really... Um, order something, pick it up in, in 20 minutes. Um, we will see this in the urban areas more and more. Wow. So that's really interesting. You're saying that maybe soon we can order online. I don't know. Maybe I want to order some of my breakfast online because I'm out of breakfast at home. And 20 minutes later, it might actually be delivered to my door. If I, if I, maybe if I live in a city or something, a more densely populated area. Absolutely, yeah. So in some parts, already reality, but this is, I think, that the future in the urban areas. So everything trends into this direction currently. Well, I've definitely not so far gotten anything delivered here within within 20 minutes. I can tell you that. I mean, it's fast. I'm very impressed with, with delivery times and so forth, but 20 minutes seems like a whole other thing. Right now, the fast deliveries tend to be, you know, order in the morning and get it in, in the afternoon or order in the evening and it's there by the morning. That's fast but there's still a little bit of planning ahead there. And it seems like it could really change the way people think about what they buy. If you can get it in 20 minutes, you really don't need to plan ahead much. It seems like that would be a very big change. Yeah, 
it's from the from the process side, yeah, it, it will be a little bit different, yeah. But it's also evolving, so it will change in, in small steps and so on. So it's not just at the big change in in the industry and tomorrow everything is different. I think that's that's not the way how this how this value chain works. It's it's a long term thing, but there are always small changes we nearly see every day. Now, in one of the earlier episodes on the podcast, we had uh, Kinan Weirbeck from Zipline, and they do drone based deliveries. I mean, it started with medical supplies, especially blood in Africa, but it's now also delivering pharmaceutical deliveries, I believe, for Walmart in, in the US. I'm, I'm curious, as you think about, <laughs> as you think about that, you know, are, are you seeing knap warehouses with kind of landing area and takeoff area for, for drones coming up anytime soon? Are you able to say anything about that? For me, it's hard to see that this will be the future because if you look at a, a, a bigger DC where we deliver, for example, 500,000 units per day out of this, and we are thinking about how many drones we would need for just one DC to deliver this, um, I think we wouldn't see the sky anymore. So <laughs> it's it's for me it's for me that the drones absolutely make sense in such kind of delivery of pharmaceuticals to islands and so on. That's absolutely okay and and a really good thing, um, but. Everything with drones, um, I don't think so. So drones will play a role. They will play a role for specific topics, but I think it will not be the standard solution. So otherwise, it will be hard really outside. Nothing but uh, noise from drones otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting to get your take on that. So Peter, we already, of course, see AI play a very big role in automation of, of order picking through you know, AI for robotic automation. But thinking beyond order picking, what do you, what do you see as the, the role of AI in logistics in the future? I think AI will have a, a very bright future in logistics um, because um, there's so many data available everywhere in all, as I, as I talked earlier, in all the value chain spots, there's so many data available and it's not possible really to analyze all this data with classical statistical methods or with classical algorithms because they are changing so fast, they are changing so much. And um, AI is a perfect tool really um, uh, to take care of this data and really to decide the things in the right way. And I think um, the data, it, it will become more and more data. So the Currently, every sensor is tracked, every product is tracked, everything in the warehouse is tracked perfectly. Uh, we have all the details, but we cannot predict everything. And, and that's where this, um, I would say, um, models really, really help because it doesn't matter if, for example, you have a, a sale tomorrow of it's bad weather and people order different things and so on. AI can learn this and AI can predict this in the right way. So. It will not be the, 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 the real cut that tomorrow every algorithm is AI and there are a lot of algorithms that maybe don't make sense to, to do with AI, but on the, on the broad range of data is available and, and deciding the right things, um, AI will be a major player in, in, in logistics software. So that's, that's my look in, into the future. And it absolutely makes sense to, to invest here and really to, to jump into this technology. That sounds really exciting to me, Peter. I think it's also interesting that in many ways, it's really bringing you full circle because you started out programming on a Commodore and you know now 
in your in your career you are like seeing AI is going to take such a such a big role in everything you're doing. I think it's going to be a very exciting journey. Absolutely, yeah. So very very interesting stuff too. So <laughs> makes makes really fun to invest in such kind of things and and really to play with the technology. And I can tell everybody just play with the technology and and, and try it out. That's the best way how to learn it and and really find great partners like like Peter and like Covariant. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. This was a real pleasure. Learned so much about you and Knab. And yeah, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Peter. We are dropping new interviews every week. So subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.